0: Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to give a quick hug. I know we're not supposed to do that. I'm sure, matching shirts. <laughs> yes, we are wearing matching shirts this morning, so that's nice. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15, please. So we're going to be spending our time this morning. And Grace, I want you to know that I am so glad to be here with you in this strange way. And um, I am like many of you though, and I am like Randy and Eric who've preached the past two weeks. I stand before you heavy hearted. Uh, We're in the midst of an incredibly trying time, a difficult time, and it's hard. Um, we continue to have a worldwide pandemic on our hands. that affects us. Uh, today, we continue to grieve the loss of a beloved member of our church whom we love. And we uh, continue to try to make heads or tails of a senseless act of violence, uh, a black man killed on our streets And all of the the response and the fallout from that. Psalm 13, strangely, is one of my favorite psalms. Uh, A few years back, this psalm taught me how to lament. And in this psalm, the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide from me? How long will you be distant from me? And I imagine that's the sort of psalm that many of us can relate to today. I imagine that that expresses something of your heart today because it certainly expresses something of my heart. Candidly speaking, these various things mixed with a million tiny other frustrations and angst that happen in normal everyday life have tempted me to just throw up my hands. To despair. And I wonder, I begin to ask the question, is there hope? Is there a prospect for hope and grace? I think that is the question that we need to reckon with today. Is there hope? Can we have hope? Do we as believers in Jesus... Do we have hope? Do we have hope for today? Do we have hope for tomorrow? Do we have hope for a life to come? John 11 tells a story of two sisters. uh, Two sisters uh, who were confronted with a question like this. Their brother dies. And he dies, although Jesus, if he would have been there, could have saved him. And so after his death, Jesus shows up and Martha, one of the sisters, goes to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would live. And Jesus responds, he says, he'll rise again. And Martha, the sister, says, I know he'll rise. I know he'll rise on the last day, I know. And Jesus looks to her and he responds. He says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And everyone who believes in me, though he die, shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Grace, do we have reason to hope today? Yes. We have great reason to hope today because Jesus, our savior, our Lord, our king, he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus would lay his life down upon the cursed tree for the forgiveness of our sins and he would take it back up again. And because of that, today, this morning, this minute, this hour, we can have hope. Today, we're going to take a moment and we're going to see how an aspect of Jesus and his gospel truly are the answer to these trying times. How Jesus and his gospel truly are the ultimate solution to the evils and the injustices of this world. We do not hope in some, or we do not hold to some truncated message of hope we do not believe in a shallow message of hope. No, the gospel is the good news and the resurrection helps us to understand how that can be. And so today we're gonna see three points from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verses 12 through, uh, 30, uh, through 34 And uh, we'll we'll see these points as we continue in the passage. And my sincere hope and my prayer is that these points and this word, that they would help us and lead us to a more sincere and hope-filled worship of Jesus now and forever. And so we're gonna read these verses together. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. If you have your Bible, please follow along with me. Now, if Christ For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of a people of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted. Who put all things in subjection under him? When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Are we in danger? Or if the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain of humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus. And I thank you for this word that testifies to his resurrection. Lord, I pray that the reality that Jesus is the resurrection of the life would land on our hearts today in such a way that we are led to bold and courageous worship of you. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lead us to worship you in this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, I said we're gonna be working through this passage uh, and we're going to see three points from this passage and and we're going to take it section by section. And so we're going to begin in verses 12 through 20 and we're going to see a simple point, but a profound point. The resurrection is real. The resurrection is real and that is good news. But some deny this. And that's the problem that is moving all of the action forward here in this section of 1 Corinthians 15. The problem that Paul is dealing with in these verses is, is that some are denying that the dead will be resurrected bodily. They're saying it won't happen. There is no such thing as resurrection. One of two things is probably going on in these verses. Either the Corinthians are drawing on a uniquely Greek understanding of the afterlife, which would make sense. And because of this, our bodies are immaterial. We are delivered from our bodies and we go on as disembodied souls forever. That's what the afterlife consists of. Or the Corinthians might be holding to a belief that when a person dies, they, they cease to exist. They are annihilated. They, they just go away into the ether. They, they, they're no more. Paul makes the argument that if either one of these things are true, that if the dead are not actually raised bodily, then Christ himself necessarily has not been raised. Christ has not been raised. Now, Rejecting Jesus's resurrection may seem crazy to you. Uh, we, we live in a world where, where Easter is a thing, where we celebrate Easter every year and it's a big deal and we sing songs and, and we say, he is risen and we have responses for that. And it, it, the, the resurrection is sort of an ever-present reality in many of our minds, but rejecting the resurrection, Jesus's resurrection is common enough. It's not merely a first century sort of thing. For instance, many theologically uh, liberal and progressive Christians, not all many of these sorts of Christians will reject a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. And for them instead, the resurrection is meant to be understood uh, metaphorically. It's meant to be understood symbolically. It's a story that encourages us to keep going in the midst of the hardest times. It's a story that encourages us to rise from the ashes when life is tough. And so this is our world. This is present day. This is what our friends and our coworkers might very well believe. But if this were to be true, there are consequences. There are consequences. And that's what Paul wants to impress upon us. And so, if we were to go back to the very beginning of chapter 15, we see, that we see Paul say that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is not a thing that we do. It's not something that we contribute to. It's something that God has done in the past, objectively. And one key component of the gospel is the resurrection. And so it is of first importance. Well, in our passage, we see why the resurrection would be considered to be of first importance. Verse 19 serves as a sort of summary sentence for us here. Verse 19 says that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christians are to be the most pitied of people. Christians are people who others should feel sorry for. People should say, bless their hearts. People should say those poor, ignorant fools. Why? Verse 14 says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Paul and the apostles' preaching is pointless. Pointless. There's no use to it. And all belief and all faith that flows from this preaching is vanity. It has no value, no worth. Why? Why? Well, because verse 15 says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then the proclamation of Paul and the apostles is a lie. It's actually blaspheming God. It's misrepresenting God. It's saying untrue things about God. If the resurrection didn't happen, then when you hear the preaching of the gospel, like we're doing here on a Sunday morning, you are hearing lies. Something that is actually destructive, that ruins. And here's the worst part. The consequence of all of this is that that if all of this is true, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, if our preaching is in vain, the faith that it produces is in vain, then we are still in our sin and we stand condemned. That's the problem. Not only that, but because Paul really wants to hammer this into our hearts, he gives us this terrible gut punch and he says, not only that, but also our loved ones, our brothers and our sisters who have preceded us in death, those people who have fallen asleep in the Lord they also stand condemned. And because they stand condemned and because they are still in their sin and they presently are experiencing the fires of hell, tormented. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied. One pastor summarized all of this by saying, our faith is futile and we stand guilty before God. Our message is false and our mission is destructive. And those who have died in Christ have been damned before God. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. If. But, Grace, he has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, we're to be pitied and we have no hope, but God, but Christ. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. In the resurrection, Jesus not only lays his life down, but he takes it back up again. And in the resurrection, the spirit proceeds from the father. And he raises Jesus up in power. The Trinity is at work in this wonderful miracle. And so Christians are not to be pitied. No, the exact opposite is true. Instead of pity, Christians should be envied. We think back on all of those things that are rendered meaningless apart from the resurrection. And we see that no resurrection equals no value. But if the resurrection, but if there is resurrection from the dead, then these things are endued with value. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, then preaching the gospel is not vanity. It's speaking the truth about God. Proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming God's goodness and his power and his grace. And this produces real, not futile, real faith. And by God's grace, this produces justifying faith that results with peace with God. Relationship with God, right relationship. And so we are not in our sin and we do not stand condemned. And this is good news. Theologians, they'll point to a threefold significance of the resurrection. The father declares the last enemy death has been conquered. It symbolizes what believers can expect to happen to them. The church gets a picture of their future in the resurrection. And three, it ensures our justification and our glorification. It completes salvation. Do you see the significance of the resurrection? Do you see the significance of this objective moment in human history? Paul wants Christians everywhere to know that because of the resurrection, they have gained everything in Christ. As John Calvin says, through his death, sin was wiped out and death extinguished. Through his resurrection, righteousness was restored and life raised up. So thanks to his resurrection, his death manifested its power and efficacy in us. I remember sitting in a world religion philosophy class in undergrad. One of my close friends and I, uh, we took this class together with a professor who we really liked. We'd taken this professor before And so um, needed to take this class, so we took it with her. And as part of this class, this professor, she would work through all of the major religions and some of the minor religions. And part of her goal in this class was to show how all of these religions were compatible. They were equally valid. And so towards the end of the semester, she gets to Christianity. And the way that she sought to make Christianity compatible with all of the religions and ensure that all religions were equally valid, she said that the Bible needed to be understood symbolically. Its truth claims were claims that needed to be interpreted. And so in one class, she taught us uh, about the 12 plagues uh, in Egypt from the book of Exodus. And she taught us that all of these plagues had natural explanations. Every one of these plagues could be understood not to be a miracle, they weren't miraculous, but they were symbolic interpretations of natural phenomena to convey universal truths. And so she showed us how algae can make a river turn red. Uh, she uh, showed us how uh, disease could have festered and, and could have spread in such and such a way, how sometimes frogs and locusts would would gather in these large groups at particular times and, and every single plague she worked through and she showed us how how it wasn 't a miracle it wasn 't supernatural this was just a normal sort of thing that was interpreted and i 'd argued with this professor for about ten weeks, and so I was pretty tired by that point but finally my friend raised his hand and he said, but God said that these things were miraculous. So if what you're saying is true, then God is a liar and shouldn't be trusted or followed and all of this stuff is meaningless. Well, that's exactly the point that I think we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 15 so far. That is what Paul is getting at in this passage. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then we're all in trouble. We have no hope. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did rise from the dead, then algae didn't turn water red in the book of Exodus. Instead, the great I am standing up on behalf of his people, extended his strong right arm and he delivered them from the clutches of an oppressive people. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then God really did lead his people by a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then then God delivered his people into the promised land by miraculous means. He even had his people walk around a city seven times and yell and by his power, he toppled walls. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then God preserved his sinful and rebellious people through eras of judges and kings and prophets and even exile. And usually in the most miraculous of ways, sending angels, speaking and causing dry bones to come to life. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then God really looked upon a hopeless people and he looked upon them in love and he sent his son, God in flesh to dwell among us. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, then Jesus, the Christ, truly lived amongst us a perfect life of glad obedience to the father in a way that none of us ever could really performing miracles really performing signs really extending love to real people and if christ really rose from the dead then that same jesus really did go to the cross where he really had the wrath of God poured out on him and he drank every last ounce of that cup on our behalf so that we might experience the forgiveness of sins, so that we might know everlasting life. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we gain God. and We gain everything. Grace, will you receive Jesus' resurrection today? Will you believe in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, this thing that is of first importance? Will you lean on Christ for life? If Jesus really did rise, we gain everything. Well, this Jesus, he stands before you as the resurrection and the life. And he bids you to trust in him. This is our first point. The resurrection is real. And that is really good news. And it has all sorts of theological consequence, but there is more. And so now... I want us to see two particular ways that the resurrection is good news as outlined here in 1 Corinthians 15. Two ways that the resurrection being real is good news for us. And the first, uh, as we see in verses 20 through 28, the resurrection promises a bright future. The resurrection promises us a bright future. As we move into this next section of our passage, we see a big problem. And it's a problem that confronts all of us. It doesn't just confront uh, uh, Corinthians in the first century. No, it confronts every one of us, including the Corinthians. And that problem is that death is coming for every one of us. Death is coming. It's coming for us. It's coming for me. It's coming for you. And it's coming for every single person we know, every single person we love. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us why. Verse 21, for as by a man came death. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. Here in these phrases, Paul is telling us a sober truth. Every person who has ever lived is in Adam and will therefore die. Paul puts it a little bit differently in Romans 5. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So these passages, they tell us a strange truth that Adam, our first parent, Adam represents us. Adam represents us. He represented the whole of humanity, the whole human race. He's what's called our federal head. And what did he do in Genesis three as he represented us? He sinned. He ate of the fruit that God forbid. And in doing so, sin was introduced to the whole world. And Paul says that in this, all have sinned in Adam. Every one of us. There's not a single person who is left out of this equation. All have sinned in Adam. And as a result, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. It's who we are and it's what we do. And because we're all sinners, we all deserve the consequence of sin, which is death. And so we die. Every one of us, we die spiritually and we stand condemned and we die physically. Life actually leaves our, our bodies. And so that's the reality. That's a sobering reality. And Paul wants to make sure that the Christians in Corinth, that they realize the massive problem that they face. Spiritual and physical death. But Paul doesn't just give them the problem. He points them towards a solution. He he alludes to the solution in Romans 5. Adam was a type of the one who is to come. And he tells us explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, what is the solution? Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, now we can now be in Christ. And now even though we're dead and we will die, verse 21 and 22 tells us that we can be made alive spiritually and we can experience physical resurrection. We can be made alive spiritually today in Christ. And that's what happens when we're saved. When we believe in Jesus we're saved by grace through faith, God raises us up with Christ. We go from spiritual death to spiritual life. We are made truly alive today in Christ. And so if you were a believer, if you were a Christian, that is true today. You have experienced resurrection today. You have been made alive truly. And if you're not a Christian, that can be true of you today. You can believe in Jesus. You can be saved and you can go from true spiritual death. You can be condemned before a holy God and you can be raised to life through the power of God. And so believe in Jesus. What about physically though? We still wait for our physical or bodily resurrection. We will die unless Jesus returns. Death waits for us. But... The resurrection promises that death will not have the final say. Paul tells us that we who are in Christ, those who believe in Jesus, we will be resurrected. But verse 23, each in his own order. That's an important phrase. Each in his own order. First, Jesus will rise as a first fruit. Then again, verse 23, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what's Paul getting at in this? He's doing a couple of things. First, Paul refers to Jesus as a first fruit, as the first fruit. And so Paul's using an agricultural term here, an agricultural image to show the certainty of our bodily resurrection. He's also saying what type of resurrection we'll experience, but we're gonna get into that next week. Jesus rose in glory, He's like the first fruit of a harvest that tells the farmer that the harvest is coming and what the rest of the harvest will be like. And and so Jesus becomes our guarantee of a future glorious bodily resurrection. But that won't happen until his coming, until he returns. And so Paul's saying that there's a a period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his return where we all will be resurrected. A period of time where some things need to happen first. And so verse 25, he must reign. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus must reign at the right hand of the father until the father puts every rival throne, every rival rule, every authority, every power is subdued and conquered under Jesus' feet. And when this happens, Jesus will return to claim his bride and raise the dead to Christ and raise the dead in Christ to life because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And at this point, Jesus will fully and finally triumph over death and we will experience the fullness of the eternal life that we experience in some measure today. There are so many interesting things about this passage. Uh, interesting things that I wish we had time to consider, things like dates and times and, and when this happens and how much time passes. And I wish we could get into all of that. But for our purposes now, I want you to see a big point. And that is that because of all of this, because of what Jesus is doing here and what he's promising us, because of the resurrection, we are guaranteed a future, a future. I have purchased pay-per-view exactly one time in my life. And that was June 8, 2002. And it was the Mike Tyson versus Lennox Lewis boxing match. Uh, In high school, I got really into boxing. Uh, I boxed for a little while and I got obsessed with the sport of boxing in general. And so all of this Boxing uh, interest sort of culminated in this fight between Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis, and somehow, um, in our world today, Mike Tyson seems to me to have a pretty decent reputation. Uh, he, he's in movies, he's on TV, people seem to like him. He's in tabloids, and usually positive things are said about him. And great, uh, but. That was not the case in the early 2000s, and the late 1990s. He was a lightning rod. And I think he was pretty universally despised. Lennox Lewis, on the other hand, was generally well liked. He was a great fighter. He was respected. Uh, maybe not everybody liked him or loved him, but they at least respected him as a good fighter and as somebody who mostly did the right thing. Uh, and he wasn't Mike Tyson, which got him a lot of favor from a lot of different people. So the build-up to this fight was pretty big. Uh, it, was, it was pitched as the biggest fight that had ever happened. Uh, it, it shattered records for pay-per-view. And leading up to this fight, uh, Mike Tyson uh, said a whole bunch of things that have gone down in history. Uh, he said, I want to be a professional, but I want to kill him. He said, I want his heart. I want to eat his children. So as a high schooler who's obsessed with boxing, I was super invested in this fight because I so badly wanted Lennox Lewis to win because he was going up against this seemingly overtly evil man. But at the same time, he was going up against Iron Mike Tyson, one of the greatest fighters of all time, uh, a fighter whose right hand was feared, one of the best. And so two heavyweights, heavyweights of heavyweights square up. And I remember the, the angst and the anxiety I felt as I watched this fight begin. And these two men stood beside each other, seemingly equally matched, who would win? Well, um, if you're not a boxing historian, Lennox Lewis did end up winning a great fight in the eighth round. He knocked Mike Tyson out. Well, I share this story because I think Paul is setting us up a little bit. And he's setting us up to see death and to see Jesus a little bit like Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis. They seem to be fairly evenly matched heavyweight foes. You have death in one corner, he wears his black trunks, and he's formidable. Death has defeated every opponent that he has ever faced. And in the other corner is the upstart but skilled Jesus. He's got his white trunks on. He's light and he's life. And we'll see what happens in this epic bout. Paul sets us up to think that there is going to be a massive battle. That this is going to be a knockdown drag out fight going eight rounds and maybe it'll end in a KO. Paul sets us up to be on the edge of our seats, to peer in with the masses, with millions, to see what will happen. But then he pulls the rug out from under us. You see, there's no battle. There is no fight. This is a massacre. This isn't fair. Jesus isn't merely a skilled but somewhat equal opponent to death. Jesus is death's conqueror. No, Jesus destroys death. He casts death down. Nothing can match Jesus for he is Lord of all and King of kings and he reigns supreme. And because Jesus is Lord of all, because he has true and perfect authority, he rose triumphant from the grave after suffering upon the cursed tree. The grave could not hold him. It was impossible to hold him. And now death has been robbed of its power. Death has been plundered. And because of this, we who are in Christ, we who are in Christ, we too will rise triumphantly according to the mighty and the powerful work of Christ. In other words, we have a sure, a certain and a guaranteed future a bright future a bright future that we'll learn includes no more pain no more suffering no more tears grace death surrounds us it is on all sides we have people dying in our country in our world due to disease we have a dear member of our faith family in phil davis die in a senseless tragedy. We have George Floyd die in the streets of Minnesota. And and I'm sure if we were to poll each other, we could think of so many other examples of death. Death is pressing in. It's devastating. And not only that, but our deaths are certain. We will die too. And hopefully it won't be due to some form of injustice racial or otherwise, hopefully it won't be due to a pandemic, but death is certain and it is coming for us. In Jesus' resurrection, it promises us that death will not have the final say. No power, no scheme of hell, no injustice worked within wicked hearts. Nothing, nothing will stop King Jesus from bringing us to himself and causing us to live with him forever. Again, Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. And so we have a bright future. A bright future. But what about today? What does the resurrection say about today? Does resurrection only have future benefits? Does it only have theological benefits? We're 1 Corinthians 15, no. So we have our final point. From verses 29 through 34, the resurrection gives meaning to the present. Gives meaning to the present. Paul began his argument by asking what the theological or spiritual consequences would be if there was no resurrection. Then he said, the resurrection is true and it promises us a bright future where death no longer reigns. Now though, Paul wants to ask a very personal question. What are the personal consequences if the resurrection isn't true? What does that cost Paul personally? What does it cost you personally? What does it cost me personally if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true? Well, Paul wants to answer that question. Wants to take that question on. And he does so by going to a very strange place. Verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, what do people mean when they baptize on behalf of the dead? So I, uh, candidly speaking, am not sure what is going on in this verse. Um, there doesn't really seem to be any consensus here. Uh, I can't make sense of it perfectly. Um, Just to be brief, I do not think that Paul here is describing some sort of strange ritual where a living person is dying or is uh, being baptized for a dead person. I have lots of reasons for that. and I could tell you in private. What I do think is happening here, though, is Paul is talking in a strange way, in a roundabout way, saying, why would you, who are spiritually dead, why would you who are spiritually dead go through with baptism, which signifies dying with Christ and raising with Christ if there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead? Why would you be baptized? it, It signifies something that makes no sense if the resurrection isn't real. And then Paul says in verse 30, if there is no resurrection, why are we in constant danger? And here Paul is pointing to himself and saying how his faith in Christ has led him to live a life of radical obedience, of giving himself to the church, of proclaiming Christ where he is always at risk and where he is always uncomfortable. And he says a similar thing in verses 31 and 32. I protest brothers by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Again, Paul, he's lived a life for Christ where he puts himself willingly in harm's way. He doesn't seek it out. He's not a masochist, but he puts himself in harm's way for the cause of Christ. He's in danger of persecution. He's in danger of hatred from his friends and his family and his kinsfolk. He's in constant danger of suffering. He's in danger of anxiety. Why? Because he lives for Christ. Because his life is not about himself, but about Jesus. And if there is no resurrection, what is the point? And so Paul sums it up in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, live life up. Because these fleeting moments are all there is. So enjoy them. If the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of Paul's devotion, all of his faithfulness, all of his preaching and proclaiming of the gospel, all of his suffering for Christ, all of his service to the church, even his own baptism is meaningless. Has no value if Christ didn't rise. But Christ did rise. You see, Paul keeps pointing to the consequences of Jesus not rising because he wants us to be utterly sure. He wants it to be fixed in our minds and fixed in our hearts that Jesus did rise from the dead in glory and in power. And what are the consequences? What does it mean personally for Paul if Jesus rose from the dead? It certainly doesn't mean that life is worthless and all the life lived for God is nothing. No, it means that every single action, Every single action, live to the glory of God matters. It means Paul's preaching matters. It means Paul's obedience to be baptized matters. It means Paul's devotion matters. It means Paul's service to the church matters. It means Paul's expression of love to sinners and to saints matters. It means Paul's suffering matters. The the resurrection validates his striving for Christ. The resurrection gives meaning and legitimacy to his grace-fueled efforts. The resurrection says that when when Paul says yes to Christ, he is tapping into something lasting, something eternal, something beautiful, something meaningful. As I jump forward into a passage that we're gonna preach in a couple weeks, this sums it up well. Be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The resurrection says that our labor is not in vain. I've been reading, rereading the Lord of the Rings here recently. And it's reminded me of a common theme in many hero stories. And many of these stories begin in a pretty similar way. Uh, It all begins in a seemingly normal world, Frodo's in the Shire, uh, there's peace. Harry Potter is at Privet Drive, uh, Luke is on Tatooine. But then something happens, something that thrust adventure upon these heroes. So Harry finds out he's a wizard. A ring shows up and it has magical properties. Droids come on the scene. And in these stories, what's interesting is, is the heroes rarely jump into the action, jump into the, uh, the adventure immediately. Usually there's some hesitancy. Usually they reject their call because they're too small, uh, because uh, they're not talented enough, because they're not interested. There's something holding them back. But then there is this thing and it's called the crossing of the first threshold. The crossing of the first threshold. And this is the point in the hero's life where they jump where they make that hard decision and they set out on their adventure and they leave their old world behind. It's when Harry goes to Hogwarts, when Frodo leaves the Shire. This movie trope is compelling, I think, because that's when you you cross the first threshold, that's when you're confronted with a massive and life-changing question. And for us this morning, I think we are potentially confronted with a similar sort of life-changing question. And that question is, what if Jesus really did rise from the dead? What if Jesus really did rise from the dead? What if that actually happened in human history? What if God the son really was dead and life really did come back and fill his bones? What if that truly took place? 2,000 some years ago. You see, we may not be theologically liberal or progressive and outright deny the physical resurrection of Jesus, but some of us are functional deniers of Jesus' resurrection. And the way that we live, we deny that Jesus truly rose and we deny that we will follow. If you just think about it, if we truly believe in the resurrection, would there be a person that we know and that we love that hasn't heard the gospel? Would we be so concerned about fearing man or accumulating stuff if it all gave way to glory? Whether we literally, or whether we uh, functionally deny Jesus' resurrection, Paul calls us to wake up. Verse 34. There's this harsh rebuke. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Grace, we have to ask ourselves what if Jesus really did rise from the dead? What if he really did rise? How would your life look differently if Jesus really rose from the dead? What if it was all true? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, and you really do have the hope of a bright future and a meaningful today, what would change? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then our time in this life will be a tiny blip on the eternal timeline. And we should therefore steward our life to bring King Jesus the maximum amount of glory. Rather than being slaves to the fear of man and death, being fueled by the power and the hope of the resurrection, we are very bold and we proclaim Christ that sinners would no longer be situated or located in Adam, but they would be in Christ and they would know his life and they would know the joy of a right relationship with God. Rather than being controlled by physical and emotional comforts, we can labor fruitfully and faithfully to serve the church and to see something of the justice of the kingdom of God, be experienced in this life because these things bring glory to God, it pleases him. How do we engage with COVID-19? How do we think about the injustice of our beloved brother being taken from us due to another selfishness? How do we think about race and racism in America and all the conversations that need to be had surrounding this topic? Well, if the resurrection is real, then that informs all of these things. Doesn't mean it's easy, but the resurrection speaks to these things. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so that changes everything. Jesus really did rise from the dead. So everything is going to be okay. Jesus really did rise from the dead. So what we do today matters. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so we can hope in him. Let me pray that God would help us to hope in him. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. And I thank you that he does stand today as the resurrection and the life. And he bids us, whether it be for the first time or for the millionth time, to experience his life in our bones and to be sure that eternal life is ours because he has won it for us. Father, I pray that you would cheer our hearts with that glad and awesome truth today. That you would help us to live this week uh, having your spirit produce in us this resurrection power that that leads us to live faithful, holy, obedient lives, bringing glory to Jesus, loving our neighbor, serving the church. Oh God, would you help us? We need your help. And so I ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.